Welcome. This talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. So welcome to Inside LA Long Beach Sunday Sit. Uh, so uh, the topic for today is... Um, Whatever, right? I just posted it today, <laughs> this morning. Um, stress, love, and family. Um, a holiday survival guide. A holiday <laughs> survival guide. Um, we all could use this as we enter into the holidays. I don't know what's beeping. That's my phone. You turned on. Oh, okay. Um... So first of all, we had a great, I guess yesterday we had a, a meta retreat. How many were there? There's a couple people, a few people that were there. So it was super lovely. We had um, an all-day loving-kindness retreat over at the Montecito Center. And um, yeah, full disclosure, after that, I did what you're not supposed to do. Um, we always say after the retreat, just hang low and don't do much. But my high school buddy... Um, I was in a band with in high school. His band was playing last night. And they're like this deep, heavy metal band. <laughs> Full disclosure, they went on at 11, so I'm a little tired. But, um, but it was interesting, like, the aftermath of the meta retreat. You know, there's a form of the Brahma Viharas called Mudita. So when love meets different aspects or situations, love can shift. You know, so these are the four Brahma Viharas. So one is metta, which is just pure loving kindness, happiness, wanting others to be happy. When love meets suffering, it shifts into compassion, not wanting others to suffer. And then when love meets good times, like when somebody's doing well, when they're flourishing, this is mudita, rejoicing in the happiness of others, right? This one's somewhat difficult for us you know if you just go through your news feed like your Facebook and so and so is in Hawaii and they're buying their third home and they <laughs> got that job you wanted you know this is a great time to practice mudita like rejoicing in the happiness of others and the last one is equanimity but I I felt this really strong mudita for my friend you know because I saw you know, we were grew up together and whatnot, and then he was in his element, he was so happy doing something that he loved, and man, I just, I loved seeing him happy, you know, back there, he plays the drums, and yeah, so, um, yeah, so anyway, he was neat. So as far as the, the stress of the holidays, um, I, I really think it's, it's quite interesting that it's kind of a microscope for our practice because there's things that we have to face. So when the holidays arise, automatically there's uh, the family element. And we are forced to kind of face family. Has anyone had, had any difficulty with family at all? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Um, so just like in meditation practice, we're, we're kind of 
consciously inviting the difficult aspects to arise and, and really pay attention to them. And so same thing with, with the holidays is that it's just forcing us to, to look at some of these difficult aspects to arise. So one of them is just families and maybe relationships and there might be some group activities and whatnot and uncomfortable situations. Um, especially in today's time, there might be... Anyone have a political divide in their family? Yeah. Nobody? <laughs> so this is another element that's just here, present, you know? Um, the other aspect is like this utopian Disney view of what a family should look like. Um, does anyone's family look like that? No, it's just not really real. But it's here, you know? So I think like the best survival guide would actually be a maintenance program for 2019 2020 holiday season. <laughs> so what I mean by this is that it's very difficult to practice when we're trying to use the practice on our most difficult situations. So a lot of people say, um, oh, they come to me, oh, I want help meditation to deal with, and then they list the most catastrophic aspect of their life. Like, I want my practice to work over here. Which eventually... That's wonderful if it, if it can meet those types of hardships. But that's not where we start. That's not where we begin. Like we're in training. And just like anything, you want to start, you want to go to the gym and start lifting the heaviest weight or start a marathon by running 26 miles, right? We start right where we are with the little things. And then eventually our flame of awareness can grow and grow so it could burn up these heavy, these heavy things. So I thought what I would do in, in the light of that, in the light of just using our practice on a day-to-day -day, um, reference point is to actually do a review. So go back to the beginning. So I wanted to start with right back at the beginning of, and this is just kind of one, one little path here. There's a lot of different beginnings to different paths, but I'm going to just use the mindfulness path. And for many, probably most of you in the room, this is going to be a, a review, but sometimes these foundational elements get lost, and I liken the path itself um, and some of these foundational elements to like a golf swing. Like you could probably learn how to learn a basic golf swing in about a half an hour, right? Any, any golfers in here? Anyone? Yeah. I did a little bit. And yeah, just it doesn't take that long to learn, but then it could take a lifetime to master, right? Um, so it's kind of like this. So I want to start by unpacking the definition of mindfulness. The one that I like to use is uh, John Kabat-Zinn's because it kind of in incorporates all of it. And we'll kind of unpack that. His definition is paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. Yeah? Super easy, right? <laughs> Especially the last one. Non-judgmentally. 
Um, so paying attention, this one's somewhat obvious uh, that we need to pay attention if we're going to make a change, but also it's really the most difficult. We, even if we know what to do, how many of us we know what we do, what we know what to do, but we forget to do it. Anybody? So the Pali word for mindfulness is sati, which means to remember. To remember. So this is like the most pivotal action in mindfulness is just coming back to remember. So we're paying attention. What are we paying attention to? The present moment. So how do we get back to the present moment? The senses are the doorway to the present moment, right? We can't taste anything from tomorrow, touch anything from yesterday, right? So if we're with the senses, then we're in the present moment. So this is, this is how we know. So this mindfulness is coupling our mind with one of our senses. So if we're in a room and the, talk, the, the clock is ticking, so you're in a room and the clock is ticking, but you notice that you only notice it it's always ticking, but you only notice it when you're aware of it. Yeah? So this is, this is mindfulness coming, coming to it. So let me, another example is like, um, okay, put your, put your eyes and your mind on this bowl. Okay, and I'm going to count to ten. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So, how did your eyes do? Were your eyes able to stay on the object? It was hard. It was hard even for the eyes? It burned. You know, that's why I was just thinking they were kind of twitching. Did you blink? I didn't say not to blink. You could blink. You didn't even blink. Hardcore right there. That's hardcore. I didn't even blink. So the eyes, the senses, the visual, the eyes are able to stay on the mind. I mean, stay on that bowl. How did the mind do? Was the mind able to stay on the bowl? So-so. And even if it did... Let's say I did this for 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 60 seconds. What's going to happen eventually? The eyes can maintain a visual. What's going to happen eventually with the mind? It's eventually going to wander, right? So this is a little example of what mindfulness is. It's attending to something, paying attention and attending to that object, right? Coming back to that. So paying attention to what? The present moment. Now, the present moment is interesting. The present moment is singular, right? So for stress to arise, we need two opposing forces. We need how it is and how we want it to be. We need two. Stress can't exist just in the moment. There's not two things. It's just a happening. It's just this. Yeah? Yeah? So even that small example, right? I just held the bowl up. When your eyes were on the bowl, where were all your problems when your eyes were on the bowl? Nowhere. 
nowhere. Very, very simple. Like we were just there, even, even if that was just for a few seconds, for a few seconds, you were just in the moment with the sense that's happening right now. Rehearsing and rehashing, they're just fantasies, yeah? They're not happening right now. So you notice that when we kind of merge with the moment, it's singular. There's no stress there. There's no dissonance there, right? You're just with what is as it is. So it's very calming. So we're paying attention to what the present moment the third piece, paying attention to the present moment, this is my favorite one, is on purpose. On purpose. This is my favorite one for a couple of different reasons. For one, it gets missed a lot. When people think of mindfulness, they don't say, hey, on purpose. You know, a lot of it's the paying attention part, the non-judgmental part, but on purpose. So if we were to hold a treat up for a dog. The dog is like a Zen master, right? Like, <laughs> like total shamatha, like samadhi, you know, single point of concentration. Amazing. So we could think like this is it. Like this would just be like the dog, like the dog's a teacher, which they are. But, um, but there's a flavor maybe missing. Although I think you know, we are trying to evolve into dog status of unconditional love and whatnot. The dog's not necessarily conscious of consciousness, right? The dog is, is probably going out of more of a primal, habitual attention, right? If there was a, 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 like a little accident outside or something, like a fender bender, we heard this, we would like run to the window and we would check out what's going on. Even though we're highly attentive, we're actually unaware. Like something could be then happening behind us and we wouldn't be aware of it, right? It's not on purpose. So the other aspect is what shows up when we're doing something on purpose? This is everything. This is Bodhi. This is, this is awareness. This is wakefulness so what shows up when we're doing something on purpose is what we're attempting to marinate in this is the knower right so usually we're really paying attention to what's known yeah a thought an emotion a sound a visual something what's known we leapfrog from what's known to what's known and we self-identify with that all the time Rarely are we in contact with the knower, the knower of what's known. Rarely do we make contact with this. So this on purpose is making contact. Whether we know it or not, we're not really maybe even conscious of that. But when we wake up on, on purpose, this, this wakefulness in and of itself is very, very rare. We spend most of our time, correct me if I'm wrong, just lost in thought, kind of like thought zombies, you know, we're just kind of do do do, kind of like lost in thought, lost in emotion, if we have a strong body sensation, we're lost in that, but rarely are we awake to wakefulness, so this is the on purpose, this is why if we're 
looking at a room full of college students and they're all paying attention to the teacher, you don't walk in that room and say, look at all these meditators. They're all meditating. This is, this is the element that, make, that separates meditation and mindfulness from just this, this bare attention. Right? So this has these different flavors. This is, like I would think, the most important flavor is this on purpose. Paying attention to the present moment on purpose. This is the next, the next one's the easiest one. Non-judgmentally. Non-judgmentally. This non-judgment piece, in my opinion, is why we don't practice mindfulness habitually and effortlessly because of this judgment. You know, this is the first, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, right? This, this attachment and aversion. So why don't we just practice this naturally? Why don't we just want to look at everything and just be with everything and be awake to everything? Because it's uncomfortable, right? And some of the stuff that comes up, it sucks, and we don't want to look at it. You know, looking at the holidays, it's like things come up that we don't want to look at, that we really can't handle. We don't have the inner resource tools to expand enough to hold. And so some people go to trying to forget. They go into drinking. They go into some sort of coping mechanism that makes them forget it for a while, right? And we do this too. So we're driving. An uncomfortable thought arises about work, finances, relationships. And then all of a sudden the hand moves towards the radio. And it pushes the volume. And then sound arises. And then we move into the song. Yeah? So when the going gets tough, the tough get distracted. That's like our (laughs) go-to. We have a really difficult time with this non-judgment. But we're practicing. Yeah? So going back to this on purpose. On purpose, we're waking up awareness. Now awareness is automatically non-judgmental. Does your awareness care about, have a judgment about these flowers? Just awareness. Bare awareness. Right? Bare awareness is automatically neutral. This is why it's so peaceful when we get to marinate in awareness. It's this loving presence where everything has a place just as it is in awareness. Even our thoughts, which we're going to get into next. Right? So, paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non judgmentally. So, this is kind of the first kind of aspect of how we're looking. Now, the second most important piece is what are the what are the things that we want to look at with mindfulness? This is what I want to go to next. Let me check time. How do I how on the side, on the right side. On the right Hi. side. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Okay, what's the definition of mindfulness? On purpose, non-judgmentally. Okay. 
Now that's not mindfulness. <coughs> it's another extremely important piece. That's the definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness is your experience of the definition. Mindfulness cannot be described. Just like if you went to Italy and you had a fantastic time in Italy and you came back and you were telling your friend about Italy. Do they really know Italy? No. They really don't know Italy. So this is a, a, almost a little bit of a danger with mindfulness is that paying attention to the present moment on purpose kind of makes sense conceptually. It can almost help in a way. A little pause here and there. Yeah? It's very important that we get an experience. That awareness, this paying attention to the present moment on purpose, that, that experience of mindfulness absolutely cannot be described. Absolutely not. It's very real, but it's very wordless. It's descriptionless. Just like falling in love is real, but can you really describe falling in love? Can you really describe if you're moved with a work of art? Totally real feeling within yourself, but you can't describe it. And then if we stay in the conceptual, if we just stay with the definition, it's not going to be much use. You know, maybe 1%, 2% use. But we're not going to contact that place of peace and refuge within ourselves. Okay, so I'm going to fit a lot in this little thing, but maybe 10 more minutes. So how many of you are familiar with the Triangle of Awareness? All right, a few of you. So the Triangle of Awareness is where it's the most powerful place to put this mindfulness. So the entirety of our external phenomena, the external life, the entirety of our life is processed inwardly in just three ways. Only three ways. So if somebody comes in to the depression clinic where I work and they say, I'm suffering, right? I'm suffering from depression. I know that they are encountering unpleasant thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. Thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. This is the, this is the, the only way that we actually transform or experience external phenomena in just three different ways. So this is what's on our workbench, right? Does anyone know of any other way that we process inwardly other than thoughts, emotions, and body sensations? It's pretty much it, right? So this is, this is what's out, out before. So if we say we're suffering, this is what's on the workbench. This is what we're looking at. Thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. So this is what we're applying mindfulness towards when, when we're suffering, right? Paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. So how many of you ever suffered from a thought? <laughs> Never. Never. <laughs> so I like to say, and I'm just throwing it out there because it's made it up, but the only way to suffer is to believe a suffering thought. And you could 
ruminate on that, ruminate on that and get back to me if you figure out some other way to suffer. And this goes back to that non-judgment. So this is where the rubber meets the road with mindfulness. A thought arises out of absolutely nowhere. It arises. Somewhere along the way, we grab it and say mine, which I think is fascinating. <laughs> and let's say it's a suffering thought, like I might lose my job or something like this. Yeah. That's a maybe. That's a don't know. So if you're able to let that thought come and go, right? Non-grasping mind, non-judgment. It's just a thought. Yeah. What are you without that suffering thought? What are you without your most suffering thought? Not suffering. It's interesting when we look at thoughts. Thoughts are always what what's the nature of a thought? What's a thought do? It comes out of nowhere. Hangs out for a little while. And then what's it do? Either leads to another thought or disappears. It leads to another thought or it disappears. If you didn't touch it, what would it do? Disappear. This non non touching is non judgment. Yeah? Letting it be as it is. That poor thought's just trying to have its little place in time, you know? <laughs> that little thing is just up and just trying to get the heck out. But we love fiddling with it because we're all thought addicts. Say it. I am a thought addict. Good to say our name first. Yeah, right. Exactly. Casey, I'm a thought addict. It's one thing I didn't learn that much. I went on a year-long retreat, and I just left the year-long retreat thinking, man, I'm a thought addict. Like, all all year long just watching my mind want to grab onto thoughts it's this very interesting thing because it takes effort to grab a thought like our mind is naturally at rest so this is a hand naturally at rest our mind's like this so to make a fist I need to strive to make a fist I need to grab it and our mind is naturally at rest it's naturally at rest it's effortlessly doing what we wanted to do. We have habituated ourselves to grab onto thoughts. And these thoughts cause suffering, like the grabbing onto the, and onto the thought. Of course, this is the, the, the core premise of, of what Buddha taught, right? Non-attachment, non-grasping mind. That's all he taught. But it's so difficult, Right? And I'll bring in a little bit of the love piece, which I've, I said this just a couple weeks ago. But if we really loved ourselves enough, we wouldn't grab onto those suffering thoughts. You could take you you want to take away. I'm just going to kind of put this out there that if you think of a loved one, if you could take away all their suffering thoughts, would you? Every single suffering thought that they had, would you just take that away for them? No. <laughs> You want them to suffer? <laughs> Experience it. Well, it's true. Like, this is what we do for ourselves. Like, there's like, it's a part of us that, that wants to suffer. 
Yeah, because that thought that that comes, we love to play with it, even though it's suffering. It's quite interesting. That in if we didn't, if we practice non-grasping mind, this paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally, allowing it to be as it is, we're free. But there's something about it. Now what happens is, is that if I were to pick up this bowl and I set it down, it's very light. Yeah? Now, if I hold this bowl, I, you know, the bowl I grab and I hold it and I hold it for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, two years, <laughs> two decades, it's going to feel really heavy, yeah? So how much, is, how much does a new baby thought weigh? A new one. Not much. How much does a thought weigh that you have held on to for five years? And now Christmas is coming along. <laughs> and that person that you held that thought towards is at your table. <laughs> so if we're able to set the thoughts down as they arise... No problem. Our awareness, the flame of awareness, can burn up the little twigs, those little thoughts that aren't that large yet. They could burn that up. But if a log comes that has a lot of weight to it, that flame of awareness gets snuffed out. So this is what I was talking about in the beginning about we're in training. We're in training every single time we bring the mind back to the present moment, every single time we practice non-grasping mind, a thought arises and we notice that thought is there. And then we make the conscious decision to not grasp, to allow that to go. So we release, release and we come back to whatever support, whether it be the breath or loving kindness, whatever we're practicing in meditation or just the sensation at the bottom of our feet, whatever. The very moment we release, we're a Buddha, we're a Christ, we're a Krishna. The very, very moment, we're infiniteness in that moment. We're infinite potentiality in that moment. Garchan Rinpoche, which a lot of the Tibetan lamas don't really say a lot of esoteric things. They kind of stay very grounded. But he said the very, very moment you release a thought, every being in existence feels it. Like every, if you just release one thought, Everybody feels it on some level. I think it's really a neat concept to think that. You know, we're all connected in that way. That when there's a moment of freedom from one, in, one being, all the beings feel that, motive, that, that moment of freedom. We all feel that. So now our brain, our mind is released. So it's kind of like... When, we, when we're continually grabbing onto these thoughts, it's kind of like a computer that has all the tabs open and the RAM is full, you know? Like the RAM is like, you have all these programs and you got Photoshop and you got this open and that open <laughs> and it's full. It has really no room to move or to see things in different perspectives. It's kind of just stuck, you know? And then everything you do, it's really slow. You try to open up something else and it's like, and you know, get the spinning wheel if you have a Mac and all that. 
But I remember when I got the computer that I have now, my, I have a MacBook Air, and I remember I went into the store and the, the guy at the Apple store, he opened up every single app on the entire computer. He opened it all up at once to show me how fast the computer is, right? Because the computer was clear, right? Nothing else was open. So it was free to move and to, to be dynamic, like our minds, that when we're free in that moment, and we're infinite in that moment, totally free for about a second. And then we grab onto stuff. <laughs> and then we move. But in that moment of freedom, we have dipped our toe in the water of something. And this is another interesting piece is that there's not much there. It doesn't feel like, it's not doesn't feel as grandiose as I'm describing. You're like, oh, wow, well, I've re released a lot of thoughts, man. And that's, doesn't, it seems pretty mundane, right? So I have a couple analogies for this. For one, one analogy is there's a whole other world on the other side of that door, right? There's a whole other dimension. And you open up the door and you peek your head in and then shut the door. <laughs> and then you walk in maybe five feet, shut the door, right? And you think, oh, yeah, I went there. I didn't see much, <laughs> you know, not much there. Or it's like dipping our toe in the water. You say, you know, have you really felt the ocean? Do you know the ocean? And you say, well, yeah, I, I, I put my, my toe. I, I put my toe in the ocean. Do you know the ocean? So we know intimately what is arising within this awareness. Like we know intimately anger, sadness, you know, maybe jealousy, even you know, joy, all the good stuff too. We know intimately those things, but we don't really hang out with awareness. So in that moment of non-judgment, so we talked about the triangle of awareness. So it's a triangle of awareness. So there's a fourth thing in there. Thoughts, emotions, body sensations, and then the fourth one is awareness. We rarely ever access this one. Yeah. Now checking in. This is not esoteric. Just just check in real quick. Just like I asked you to like look at the bowl. Look at your awareness and see where does your awareness end? Did anyone find an end to the awareness? Right? So one <coughs> flavor of this awareness, if we were to sit with it, is this infiniteness so in comparison to infiniteness how big is a thought how big is an emotion now that same emotion that same thought when we're not really paying attention to awareness could feel suffocating yeah could feel like it weighs a thousand pounds but checking in with awareness, just like space could hold a trillion stars. Is space tripping out on holding a trillion stars? <laughs> is it saying, man, this is heavy? What happens if a planet was burning up? Would space freak out? 
if one of the trillions and trillions of planets was burning up. So in your infinite awareness, if there's one emotion that comes, we, could, we have a choice. I'll change the analogy a little bit to the sky. So the sky is just hanging out, and there's a storm in the sky. The sky never thinks it's the storm, right? Freak out, even though from, the, from underneath the storm, it looks super cloudy and da-da-da, dynamic. But what's above the storm? Blue sky, sunshine, all good. We love jumping into the storm. Love, love, love. Thought addicts. <laughs> Emotion addict. We love jumping in. I'm the storm. This arises. We self-identify with it. We jump into it. Time and time again. And the more we do it, the bigger that, that habit becomes. We self-identify with it more and more. It's an interesting thing. If something arises and we jump into it, we jump into it enough, we think, like, um, you know, I'm, we become, it becomes me. It becomes me. We start to self-identify with it. It becomes a persona. I'm an angry person. I'm a sad person. I'm an emotional person. I'm a this person. You're not any person. That's just arising within your person. <laughs> within your awareness, that thought arises, and it could just go until you play with it, right? Let me check the time. Okay. All right. Um, that air conditioning never came on, huh? <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel when you feel hot? Huh? I feel hot. <laughs> um. So I think maybe it would be nice to maybe chat a little bit, um, break up in, in um, maybe no, no groups no bigger than three, and maybe be as open as you feel like it to, to, to exchange what are the, most, the, the, the difficult things uh, for you to kind of <coughs> let go of. And maybe do you have an experience of letting those pass and what that's like. Dude, it just came on. <laughs> just like that. It heard me. Come on. Um, yeah, so maybe share like what hooks you. And be open and as you, as you want to be. What hooks you? And then what, is, what is, is it like when you feel a sense of freedom? That could be in meditation. It could be in a hobby or whatever. Like Whenever you feel kind of free, what does that feel like? And so you can just kind of turn towards um, the people next to you. So I was thinking while you were talking that our family actually on holidays get along pretty well. It's kind of a fun time for us. But um, my mom was always the center of that. Um, and she's been gone now for three years. So for me, while you're talking, I was thinking of not holding on to that. To acknowledge like, oh, my mom's not here. That's sad. I miss her. Of course I miss her. But I could grasp onto that and think of all the times we've had before, and she's going to miss this one, and she's not going to meet my daughter's children, and you know, and just make that mi I could be miserable the rest of the day and miss everything else that is there that day. Mm -hmm. So, 
that's where I'm coming from on the holiday with people is just trying not to grasp that thought, but not not say it's not there. I mean, it's of course it's there, but then not try not to grasp it. That's and we she shared about her grandmother the same thing first holiday without her grandmother, so kind of share the same thing. Wonderful, thank you. Um, so this is not have to do with the holidays, but this was something that happened to me this week. Um, that I had a very difficult conversation with my boss. I didn't get a promotion I'd been working towards for the last year. And I struggled with letting go of the thought that I got something, I didn't get something I deserved. And then, the like, does that come with complacency? Or do I need to be an advocate for myself and follow that thought? And the struggle between feeling feeling everything I was feeling. I mean, Wednesday I couldn't stop crying. I was like in public crying. Because um, I, was, I was trying to be present with what was going on, whether that was anger or sadness, uh, frustration. And I think using my, my practice, I was able to move through that and to let go of this thought of, I didn't get something I deserved, and rather move through though that thought and thinking, well, if I do, how can I be an advocate for myself and make a case and present that in a way that still makes me feel like strong and not like complacent about the entire situation. So, and I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing that's something other people struggle with of this idea of letting go of a thought, but also knowing that sometimes that thought has, that is legitimate and maybe will lead to uh, more proactive steps to be an advocate for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because th this um, non-grasping mind does not mean non-action. Um, it means not attachment, right? So e even even if you're an advocate of yourself to kind of start again, so you're starting this process again of wanting something. But the wisdom mind says it's interdependent, it's impermanent, and it's empty of inherent existence. So all the things, the factors of phenomenon that's that's arising. So I like to call this passionate, non-attachment, right? So we have compassion for ourselves and others, and we take great massive action. Massive action, massive non-attachment, because that's just the way that it is. So we can move dynamically, and if we could hold that balance, it's incredibly, like we create perseverance. So if we have strong attachment, then it feels like there's a sense of loss because we wanted something and then we didn't get it. But if we hold wisdom, not knowing that we might not get it, but we're going to strive anyway, because it's the right thing to do, and passion is life, so we don't want to let go of that. So we strive passionately, yet with full wisdom, to know that this is a very dynamic world with a lot of interdependence right, happening. Right? So we hold on to both of those, and in no way does this, does this mean to become a doormat. It's the opposite. I really drive into compassion and work to have self and others um, recognize justice and all this stuff, but just with a heart or a wisdom mind of non-attachment. Yeah. I was talking with my niece yesterday about the holidays and going up uh, to Northern California. The, the problem is, I mean, I get along very well with everybody in the family, but um, they're always in it. You know, varying state of war, and it's just like 
I just don't want to be around it. I mean, so, um, I mean, I want to see them, um, enjoy them as individuals, but they're so mean to each other. I Yeah. self-preservation there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I'm having a problem with, uh, example, yesterday in the building, they were having a party. I was invited to come down there and they were going to be drinking. And I'm, I'm not drinking, they don't want to be triggered. So I said, thank you, but I won't be there. Now I go, I'm upstairs <clears throat> and I'm thinking, where's my balance? I, I isolate or I'm with people. If I'm with people, I'm like a sponge. I start picking up the environment around me mm -hmm. and then I start getting sort of attached. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how to sort of, uh, and I don't want to isolate to, to where I'm just avoiding and I'm afraid to deal with my fears. Mm -hmm. But I have this pull, and I'm sort of, where's my balance? How do I find this balance? And, it's, it's constant. and with the holidays coming up, I find it much more in my face. Mm -hmm. Having to, ooh, I'm not sure how to balance this thing. So it's easier for me to hide, mm -hmm. or to avoid mm -hmm. the, con the conflict. So that's what's sort of coming up with me. Mm -hmm. For one, it sounds like you have great self-awareness, and you are balancing it, uh, to maybe trust that that um, as much as you can handle now, you're balancing that with great wisdom, like taking care of yourself, retreating when you need to retreat. And then if those social environments, like you feel like they're, they're, you're more susceptible to that, I would work in just a little bit at a time, mm -hmm. kind of hanging out in those environments. So facing your fears and, and those types of things, but just a little bit at a time and then moving back. And so just kind of moving in and back out to your kind Bobbing of- Bobbing and weaving. Bobbing yeah. and weaving, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it goes to anything. We talked about this yesterday, short time, many times, drip by drip fills the cup. When we're moving into really strong emotions or something like this that we have a hard time not snuffing out of our, our flame with you, like the social environments and whatnot, is you just do really small steps five minutes, one little thing, one night with a friend or, you know, and, and then you become more comfortable holding your center during those, those situations where there's no difference. Because ultimately there's only one environment. There's no, there's no inner outer environment. There's no social environment and introversion environment. There's only one environment. Your, your space, your awareness, that's it. Your, your thoughts and stuff weave through it. But if you rest in your awareness, you move everywhere and you never leave your center. It's only one environment, right? Ultimately. Yeah. Anthony, I think, been okay. there. Because um, before. The young lady made a comment about not getting a promotion. And it just reminded me of something that's in Master Home Post. And, and basically, he was talking to his students and he said, uh, the way to treat thoughts. Uh, let each thought go as if it were a stone, a stick, or the cold ashes of a dead fire, or by making whatever slight response is suited to the occasion. And what that says to me is, you know, when we're letting go, you know, when we're looking at the bowl and it's just awareness of, then we're not suffering, we're not, I should have gotten a promotion. You gotta cut those thoughts off. And then you also have to take some action, you know, how can I make sure I get the promotion next time? What slight response do I need to have to this situation? You know, I'm not upset, I'm not holding on to it, I'm not allowing it to make me suffer. Um, 
I, something I read that I thought would fit the situation. And what last one, Jacqueline? Um, I realized that I was having a lot of suffering thoughts around the holidays because um, I feel responsible for my mother. Um, but I like to kind of keep it loose and pop in lots of places. And so I, the thing that, that helped me get the altitude was, um, like, I'm not responsible for my mom. And if I decide to participate in how she experiences Thanksgiving, then that's like my choice. Like, I'm doing that. And I'm free to not do that if I don't want to. And just, I just don't feel burdened when I think about it that way. You know, it's not a suffering thought when I say, you know, just from a compassionate place, I would like her not to be alone if she doesn't want to be alone. And so uh, it just shifted for me. So I've invited her to do the way, do the holiday the way I want to do it, and she can decide whether or not she wants to do it that way. I actually happen to prefer my in-laws the ho holiday. So I'm going to stop in for an hour at my family, who can be problematic. <laughs> <laughs> And then, you know, scoop up my mom, and we'll, we're going to go to a place where I want to spend the time, and she can join me there, you know? So that's what we're doing. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all so very much for coming. Really appreciate it. Um, holiday. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.